Our text today is John chapter 14, verse 6. We're working through the I am statements of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And uh, here in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus makes the statement. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Father, a very short verse, but filled with so much. Father, by your spirit, Illuminate your word today, mold us and shape us. Father, renew our minds, transform us, that we would no longer be a people conformed to this world, but transform. Transform by the renewing of our mind, by the washing of the water of the word, by the power of your spirit. God, let us be a people, your body, your church in the earth today, that would be a bright witness to your name and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The context of this statement coming from Jesus is found in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, where we see Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room following the Passover meal. He's preparing them for his departure via his death on the cross. He's also assuring them that as he goes to prepare a place for them with the Father, he will come again and receive them to himself, that where he is, they will be also. This was fulfilled when Jesus conquered death and appeared to them again a second time apart from sin in the power of his resurrection life. With his ascension to the Father as his body, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. We've looked at this throughout uh, these I am statements. We looked specifically at this last week when we, we looked at the statement Jesus made, I am the resurrection and the life. And remember, resurrection is not something you're still waiting for. You have been raised with him. If you've been crucified with Christ, you've been raised up with him. You have been resurrected with him, and you have been raised with him to seat with him, to sit with him in heavenly places. That's what the scripture teaches us. Yet here we are, sitting in these seats in Taylor, Texas. And so we talked about how that position is a position of authority given to you so that you can go forth and obey Jesus and fulfill the commandment and the commission he gave to us to disciple the nations. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus is the way. He's not a way, but the way. And many people say Jesus is one of many paths that lead to God. Well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So there are not many paths to God. There's only one way, and Jesus is that way. Jesus indicates that the way he is speaking of is the way to the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father, and there is no other. It is in no way based on our merit, but it is the merit of Christ by which we have been accepted in the Father. And Jesus is the only way to the Father. In saying that he is the way to the Father, Jesus likens himself to the ladder set up on earth whose top reaches into heaven that leads to the very presence of the Father. This is what we call visual symbolism. It runs throughout the entirety of the scripture. If you join us on Sunday morning Sunday school, we're working through a book called A House for My Name. And it's a survey of the Old Testament, and it is a fascinating 
book, a fascinating study. Caleb is doing an awesome job teaching this class, and there is a lot of visual symbolism that we talk about, and God puts this in His Word to help us, to help us understand uh, who He is and who we are. So here, Jesus is not saying that He is literally a ladder, just like He's not saying He's literally a tree or literally a vine. He's using visual symbols so that we can picture and understand what He is teaching about Himself and ultimately what He's teaching about us. So we see an example of this earlier in John's Gospel, when Jesus encounters Nathanael. When Jesus meets Nathanael, he makes reference to the heavens being open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The visual symbolism Jesus uses in speaking to Nathanael is that of a ladder. So let's look at John chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus described the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The imagery here is that of a ladder. Jesus is the ladder that stretches from earth to heaven, leading to and from the very presence of God the Father. This pictures Jesus not only as a ladder, but as the true door or the gate. Remember, one of the statements we looked at was Jesus statement where he says, I am the door. I am the door, the gate of the sheep. And so here, when we we think about this ladder and, and upon the Son of Man, the angels are ascending and descending, this is another visual symbol that one of a door or a gate. So these visual symbols are teaching us about God, teaching us about His Son, and ultimately about us and our relation to Him. At Babel, man was trying to ascend into heaven. The name Babel means gate of God. That's what the word Babel means. Man in his rebellion thought that he could storm the gate of God and ascend into the presence of God and overthrow God. You know anybody else who thought they could do that, but was cast down instead? Well, that's what happened to rebellious man at Babel. Babel was the false gate. Guess who the true gate, the true door is? Jesus is the true gate. He is the true door. And the only way, the only door, the only gate that leads to the Father. This is not the first time we see the visual symbol of a ladder used in Scripture. Jesus is drawing on symbolism we find in the book of Genesis, where Jacob dreams of a ladder that was set up on the earth, and its top reached into heaven. And there is the visual symbol of a ladder, which also pictures a gate of God or a gate to God leading to the Lord who is above it. Let's read Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 13. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, A ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached into heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Jacob dreamed of a ladder that reached to heaven. And upon this ladder set up on the earth, 
the scripture says the angels of God were ascending and descending and standing above the ladder was the Lord. In other words, the ladder led to the presence of the Father. Jesus uses this very same visual symbolism of a ladder in reference to himself in John chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. Jesus speaks of angels who are ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jacob dreamed of a ladder, a visual symbol, but Jesus is the ladder that reaches from earth to heaven. Christ is the reality of the symbol in Jacob's dream. Jesus truly is the way. He truly is the gate of God that leads to the Father. Jesus is not only the way into heaven and the presence of the Father. Jesus is the way that the provision of heaven, along with every spiritual blessing, will be provided for all of those who are His and have His life in them. Are you His? Do you have the life of Christ in you? Well, God has made provision for His spiritual blessings for heavenly provision to come to you. The heavenly provision we need is all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. That pretty well covers it, doesn't it? All things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has not put us here and left us without the supply and the necessary things needed to carry out his commands. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ. The way his all-sufficient grace, his gifts, and his equipping is provided to his children is in Christ. In other words, outside of Christ, we get none of that. It is not provided for us outside of Christ because Christ is not only the way to the Father, but Christ is the way that all the provision from the Father comes to us. He's the ladder, if you will, upon which all of that is brought to us. He is the gate through which all of that comes, and He is the gate and the way through which we are able to come to the Father. Jesus is the way we come to the Father, but we do not come apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross. So it's not that Jesus says, okay, now you're good to go. You just, you just go ahead, and just, but just make sure that you're doing the right things, make sure that you're working hard enough, praying hard enough, make sure you've earned it before you go to the Father. Mm -mm. It doesn't work that way. We cannot come to the Father apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross. We do not come apart from the sacrifice of His body for us or the shedding of His blood poured out to make us a new creation. In other words, Jesus has made for us, by his blood, by his sacrifice on the cross, he has made, he has provided a new and a living way. We don't come apart from his grace, for it is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. Jesus is the way, he is the truth and the life. There is no other way to the Father. Well, Jesus also said, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth. Again, not a truth, not one of many truths. There is no such thing as you've got your truth and I've got my truth and this person over here has their truth. Truth is not relative. Truth is objective. It's absolute. Now, we're going to get to heaven. I'm convinced of this. We're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to find out all the things we thought we knew that we really didn't know. We, we're going to find out some things we thought were true that, lo and behold, weren't true. And, and you know why we're going to still be in heaven even though we didn't get it all right and we didn't know completely the truth and we didn't understand completely the truth? Because we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of our works. It's not because we get everything right because we don't get everything right. I'll just confess to you, I probably don't get most things right. But, but in spite of that, God still loves me because he's a good and he's a graceful God. 
So Jesus is the truth. And in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus is not only true, but truth itself. This was certainly demonstrated in his person and character as he was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. As John wrote, he is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is also truly and really man. In truth, as a man, he fulfilled the roles of prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he taught the way of God in truth. As a priest, he is our faithful and merciful high priest. He is true and faithful to him that appointed him. As a king, he is just and true in all his ways, in all of his administrations. As he rules, as he reigns, he is true in all the ways he rules, in all the ways that he reigns. He is the sum and substance of all the truths of the gospel. They are all full of him and centered in him. And he is the truth of all the types and shadows, all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. They find all of their fulfillment in him. He is the true way in opposition to all the false ways of man. Jesus is the truth that will make you free. There is no other way and there is no other truth that can make you free. John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Our freedom in Christ is conditioned upon abiding in his word and being his disciple. I didn't say that. Jesus just said that, recorded for us in John's gospel. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How will you be made free? The answer is by knowing the truth. How will you know the truth? By being his disciple indeed. How will you become his disciple? By abiding in his word. And why will you abide in his word, we might ask? Because you believe him, trust him, and love him. John 8, 36. Jesus said, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. How will you know if you are indeed free? Well, you will know as you abide in his word. You will know as you become his disciple. You will know as you know the truth. Not just information. Not just your ability to win the Bible trivia game. But do you actually know the truth? And is the truth in you? And has the truth changed you? Has it molded you? Has it shaped you? Has it convicted you? Has it caused you to walk? in his way, and not in your own. The truth will make you free. And once free, you are to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. This process of being made free is not without our commitment to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You're not working to be saved. Because you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are commanded to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? That means you are to work out your salvation. That means you are to work free from those things that hold you in bondage. You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are to come to a knowledge of the truth and you are to know that that truth has set you free. I know you're saying, yeah, that sounds really easy, Pastor Jeff. Well, honestly, it doesn't really even sound easy to me, necessarily. And I certainly know that it is not necessarily easy. 
Here's one thing you can know for sure. Your freedom will require your consistent, faithful commitment to trust Him, to abide in His Word, even when it is inconvenient, and even when you don't feel like it. It is a commitment to be His disciple, to follow Him, and to follow His ways. And as you commit to this consistently, there is no doubt you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What we want, because of the culture we live in today, is a magic pill. We want a snap of the finger, the flip of a switch, and we want all of our troubles and all of our struggles and all of the things that we struggle with, we want them to just go away. And we cry out to God and we wonder why God won't just take this away from me. Well, I'll tell you why he won't. Because God wants you to be his disciple. God wants you to learn how to abide in his word, to follow his ways. God wants you to come to a place where you know the truth and the truth has made you free. Because you have worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because he has saved you. And he has given you a desire for the truth. He has given you a desire to love him, to follow him, to worship him. If, if not, you would not be worried about that. If God hadn't put a desire for him in you, your sin wouldn't bother you. If you've ever met someone who has no desire for God within them, you will know that their sin does not bother them. Some of the people encountered yesterday were very much like that. There was nothing about their sin that bothered them. In fact, they were quite proud of it. And celebrated with all vulgarity they could muster to let us know, to let Caleb and Spencer know that they were not ashamed of their sin. God wants you to be free from that. God wants you to be convicted of your sin. God wants you to struggle with your sin. Because if you're struggling with your sin, that means you don't want to keep it. So your freedom will require your faithfulness. There's no two ways about that. God may set you free in an instant. He could. He did for me in many ways, but in many ways he did not. But more than likely, freedom from the things that hold you and ensnare you will come about through the process that Jesus described as trusting him, abiding in his word, obeying him, and knowing his truth. This, the visual symbol for doing this is that of taking up your cross to follow him. In denying yourself daily and taking up your cross to follow Jesus, you are daily doing those things that will result in you being free indeed. In case you think this is something that you will do on your own, remember there are none who understand. There are none who seek after God. Romans 3.11. Your desire to be free, you seek to be free. You are made free indeed by His grace and by His grace alone. That is the only way. But not apart from your seeking, your knocking, your abiding, your following, your obeying. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes... Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It is by grace, and it is by the work of God's Spirit that you are made free. Keep your face turned to his face. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. When you look in that mirror, 
Keep looking until you stop seeing more of yourself and start seeing more of Jesus. What is the mirror we are looking into? The mirror you are to be looking into is the Word of God. That's the visual symbolism for God's Word. In the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, it was the labor of water that was a mirror for the priest to walk up to and look and see his reflection to see if there were any imperfections before he went into the presence of God. Because you couldn't have any imperfections before you went into the presence of God. That labor is the visual symbol of the Word of God. The Word of God is the mirror we look into to see Christ in us. As you're reading the Word, if you can't see Christ in you, the hope of glory, then keep reading His Word. Keep looking in the mirror because here's the promise God gives us. As you behold him, as you fix your eyes on him, as you're, you're looking at Jesus, you are being transformed into the same image. If you take your eyes off the mirror, if you stop looking into the word of God and you start fixing your eyes on your problems, on the things you're trying to get delivered of, all you're going to do is become more and more conformed to those things that hold you bondage. The only way to get free is to look in the mirror, to look into God's Word and to keep your eyes fixed there and do not take them off until you can see more of Jesus and less of yourself. And keep looking so you keep seeing more of Jesus and less of yourself. This is the work of the Spirit of God. But He does not work apart from our commitment to behold Him to fix our eyes on him, and to look in that mirror until we are transformed. Jesus is not a truth. He is the truth. Jesus is the truth that makes you free indeed. Jesus said, I am the life. Jesus is all the life that shall ever flow to us and bless us from the Godhead. There is nothing we lack if we have Jesus. Now, we might have perceived lack. We might have a lack of understanding about the fullness that we have been given in Christ. And that lack of understanding is real, and it can cost us. But I'm telling you, if you'll keep looking in that mirror, if you'll keep looking into the Word of God, you'll soon realize that God has given you all that He can possibly give you in giving you His Son. There is nothing more, there is nothing greater that the Father may give us than what he has already given us in his Son. In giving us his Son, he has also given us his Holy Spirit, who is the seal and guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. In Jesus is all the life manifested. I want to say that again. In Jesus is all the life manifested. In 1 John 5.20, John writes of Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the true God. Jesus is eternal life. You don't just have eternal life in Jesus. Jesus is eternal life. You cannot have Jesus, and Jesus cannot have you, and you not have eternal life. Jesus is the true God. Jesus is eternal life. He is the truth and the life. In Genesis, in the beginning, we see another visual symbol in the garden of God, another sort of ladder. It is the tree of life. The tree of life is a visual symbol of Jesus reaching from earth to heaven. The tree of life, who is Christ, is who we must come to and partake of in order to enter into the way, the truth, and the life. The irony of the tree of life is that the way is guarded by cherubim wielding flaming swords, ready and willing to strike us down at any moment. Come to the tree of life and you will die. Ironic that we must first be struck down and made dead in order to partake of the life, to partake of the tree and its life. The cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life are another visual symbol. Do you know what they symbolize? The cherubim symbolize the cross of Christ. The cross is the instrument of our death 
that leads us to eternal life. In order to have a resurrection, guess what you have to have first? A death. Unless we are first crucified with Christ, we cannot be partakers of His resurrection. Here and now, I'm not talking about one day in glory, I'm talking about here and now. If you are in Christ, you are partakers of His resurrection here and now. Yes, also in the future when your body is redeemed, but way before your body is redeemed, you've already been redeemed and you've been placed here on this earth, here and now, to make a difference in the resurrection life Jesus has given to you. Jesus did not only come that we may, ha- that we may live, but that we may die. In order to be raised in his life, we must first be crucified with him in his death. This is the way Jesus speaks of when he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you think that's just a necklace you put around your neck as a symbol that you're a Christian? No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Always ask people, why don't we wear little electric chairs around our neck? That'd be kind of morbid, wouldn't it? How, why has the cross lost its morbid uh, context? Because we don't associate it with our death any longer. We associate it with Jesus' death, but I'm going to tell you right now, if Jesus is the only one that died on that cross, if Jesus is the only one being crucified through the cross, if we're not crucified with him, we will not be raised with him. That's Bible. That's the gospel. So we've turned the cross into this fashion statement we wear around our neck, and we've lost the meaning of it. We don't even realize what it really means. It doesn't just mean you're a Christian. It doesn't even mean that anymore. Have you noticed? All kinds of people wear crosses. And many of them are about as far as you can get from a Christian as you can imagine. Jesus didn't just come that we may live. He came that we may die. And it is through the cross that we die with him. Paul writes this in Galatians 2.20. We've done a whole Bible study on this called Not I But Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? That means Paul has died. And Paul says this. He said, I die daily. Now, he wasn't saying I climb up on the cross and let someone nail me there till I expire. He's saying I purpose to die to my self-will, my self life every day and follow Jesus. And the way I do that is to identify myself as having been crucified with him. There is our death at the cross that Jesus came to provide, that we may be partakers of his life. So after declaring that he has been crucified with Christ, Paul goes on to say, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith or by the faith of the Son of God. It's not you who live, it's Christ who lives in you. What happened to my life? It was crucified with Christ. Well, what's the life I'm living now? It's Christ in me. The life I live in the flesh now, I live by faith or by the faith of the Son of God. How am I to live my life? Whose will am I to do? You're to do the same will that Jesus came to do. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of my Father. Guess what? When we're crucified with Christ, guess whose will we are to be doing? The will of the Father. And Jesus made a way. Remember, he's the way to the Father. He's the truth that sets us free so that we may come to the Father, and He is the life. He is the life that raises us from the dead after we have been crucified with Him. This is true for all who belong to Jesus. All who know Christ as their life have life because they have been crucified with Christ. You live, but it is not you. It is Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by the faith of the Son of God. To say that Christ is the life is to say that Christ is the author and giver of life. Natural, spiritual, and eternal. 
John affirms this at the beginning of his gospel when he writes in John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Paul reaffirms this about Christ in his letter to the Colossians. When he writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. In other words, not just trees, hills, rocks, and stones. There are lots of invisible things that God has created. And those invisible things are even more powerful than the visible things. He goes on, he says, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before, or he is preeminent, Above all things, and in him, in Christ, consists all things. Or, or literally, it says, in Christ, all things are held together. Jesus is the life. He is the way of life. Or we could say it like this. He is the living way. Jesus always and ever will be that way, that truth, and that life. And all who are in this living way shall never die, but have eternal life. Christ is the new and living way to the Father. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 writes this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, the holiest is that innermost holy of holies where the presence of God was at the ark. We have now the boldness to enter even the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. The new and living way, that is, Christ, has been consecrated for us through the veil of his flesh on the cross and by his blood that was shed for us, his people. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way by which we come boldly to the Father, and there is no other way. Then Jesus said this, no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, I want to say, Christ is the only way. Through him is the only access we have to the Father. There is no way for us to come to God apart from his Son. He is the most high God. He is an absolute God. Remember when Esther wanted to go before her husband, the king, but she said, I can't just walk into the presence of the king because if I do that unannounced, he has the power to kill me because no one walked into the presence of the absolute king, the absolute monarch unannounced. This is what this means. He is an absolute God and one does not simply come to him we certainly do not come to him based upon the covenant of our works. We do not come to him based on our own merit. We're not ushered into his presence because we've earned it. No, not at all. It is Christ who makes us accepted in the Father. And we are known to the Father only in Christ. And that is good news for us because there would be no other way that we could come to the Father except through Christ. We come to the Father with the covering of Christ's blood clothed in His righteousness. This is the visual symbol we see when, when, when uh, Rebecca clothes Jacob in the clothing of Isaac so that in the clothing of Esau, so that Isaac would give to him the blessing that God promised. And Rebekah is not sinfully deceiving her husband. She is actually saving her husband from gross disobedience to God. She is deceiving her husband righteously so that God's word and God's will would be fulfilled. And that picture is a picture of how we come before the Father. We do not come in our own clothing. We do not come in our own skin. We do not come with our own works and our own merit. We come 
clothed in another, with the fragrance of another, so that the Father does not see us, but he sees Christ. He sees Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this statement has implications beyond your life. Salvation is so much more than what happens to you when you die. Your salvation is about the life you now have in Christ. It's about the life you are now living in your body on this earth right now until you die of physical death. And your life in Christ does not end when you die of physical death. Remember, in Christ you have eternal life. That means it continues for eternity. That being true, our lives here and now should make an eternal impact beyond our time of visitation here on planet Earth. Our lives are to make an impact into the generations that come after us, even until He comes again. In other words, when we think of salvation, when we think of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, we should think of the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, but most importantly, the way we worship. The way we worship more than anything will impact and determine all of our ways in all the areas of our life. Amen. Our worship is warfare in the spirit that has great impact on earth. The church doesn't understand this. But it doesn't matter whether she understands it or not, it's still true. And she needs to come to understand it so that our worship can begin, can begin to make an even greater impact than it is right now. Our worship should cause us to consider all of our ways in all of our life. For all of our life impacts the people, the places, and the things of life that are all around us. Your life matters. It really does. Whether you believe it does or not, it matters. In good ways and in not good ways. Let's make sure our life matters in good ways. How are you going to know that? Follow Jesus. Abide in his word. Be his disciple. Don't take your eyes off the mirror. Keep looking into that word until you can't see yourself anymore, but you see Jesus. We are commanded to live out our faith daily in such a way that the generations coming after us will be equipped and able to follow and to glorify God as they walk a clearly defined way which we have prepared for them. As they build upon the foundations and the works that were previous laid, the works and the foundations that we have laid for them, just like we're walking on those paths and we're building upon those works that have been laid generations before. How do you have this Bible? How can you have, I don't know, I, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how many copies how many volumes of the Bible, how many Bibles I have in my house. I have more than I, I can even count. I'd have to go and, and, and count them. How did we come to a place on planet Earth that the Bible is so prolific that you can have more copies than you can know of and count? Because generations before us, men and women did the hard work of making sure that this word was preserved and delivered under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God gave someone the ingenuity to, to, to invent a printing press so we wouldn't have to copy by hand, but now we can print in mass. This is the gospel at work. It's working. We are commanded to live out our faith daily in such a way that the generations coming after us will be equipped. The command that God gave to man in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over the creation, Genesis 1.28, that command has not expired. In fact, Jesus has come to renew and empower us to fulfill that command in even more glorious ways. We have been given a commission, a command to disciple the nations, teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. That is a transfer of a way of life shown us and imparted to us by Jesus. This is what we say at Koinonia Classical Christian School. An education is not just obtaining knowledge and information. 
And education is a transfer of a way of life. That's what discipleship is. It's a transfer of a way of life. And if you're disciples of Jesus, the way of life that needs to be transferred to you is the way of Jesus' life. And we do this from generation to generation until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is God's promise to us through his word, Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That day is not yet, but it is coming. And what will in large part determine how and when that day comes is how his church works. How his church worships. Because our worship will determine our work. Our life and work now is to have an impact, small or great, on our world for generations to come. When we think of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, we should be mindful of the way we live and work and pray to see his kingdom come and his will be done to the generations coming after us. There are many things that, can, that we can do to busy ourselves. Who here can say, I'm just so bored, I don't have anything to do all day long? I mean, I talk to people all the time, and, and, and everyone tells me the same thing. Man, I'm so busy. There's so much going on. I, I'm just, I don't know which, where to start, what, what to do. So it's not that we have a lack of things to do. There are many things that we can do to busy ourselves, even many good and godly things. But those things may not be the thing we should be doing in this moment. Let me give you an example. If you're out painting your barn that needs painting very badly while your house is burning down, you may be working on the wrong thing. And you shouldn't take pride in your newly painted barn while your former house is smoldering as an ash heap. You say, that's kind of a ridiculous example, Pastor Jeff. Not really. Not really at all. It's not good enough to be doing busy work that we call good or godly. Our house is burning down. We need to rally the troops and get to work on the things that will make a true difference now, in coming generations, and for eternity. Jesus has commanded us to do very specific things, such as disciple the nations, baptize them, teach them to obey all of his commands. We are to do this because we love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And because we love our neighbor. If you love your neighbor, then tell your neighbor the truth, even if, even if you think your neighbor's not going to want to hear it. I'm not, saying don't be, I'm not saying be obnoxious. I'm saying when God opens an opportunity for you to speak truth to someone, don't keep your mouth shut just because you think you might offend them if they need to hear the truth. Because the church has been so focused on getting to heaven for so long now, she has forsaken the earth God told her to take dominion over. The church has been so consumed with getting to heaven, she forgot the work of building the kingdom on earth. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Let's get to work. Our House is burning down, and if we do not put out the fire, then who will? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. This is the climax of our Lord's Day worship. Remember, this is not a sad time. We've already confessed our sin to God. You've already received the assurance of problem of, 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 of pardon. This, yeah, it might be the assurance of problem too. This is a table of thanksgiving. This is a thanksgiving feast. Let's celebrate and let's be renewed with his bread and with his wine so that we can go back out and do the kingdom work he's called us to do. Christian, you don't have to be a member of this congregation, but if you count yourself a covenant member of Christ's body, You've been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are welcome to this table, and you are welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand, and I will give you your charge today.
While the world is celebrating all of those now coming out of the closet, I believe it is time for the church to do the same. It is time for the church to come out of the closet, and I mean that literally. Jesus taught us to enter into our closet and shut the door and pray to our Father in secret. He said if we do this, the Father seeing in secret will reward us openly. You are to go to your closet. Just don't forget or neglect to come out of it. Too many Christians have entered their prayer closets and forgot to come out. We desperately need to be in our prayer closets petitioning heaven But if we stay in the closet, we may discover too late that our house is burning down around us. It's time for the church to come out of the closet and engage in the necessary work at hand. Your closet may be comfortable, it may be safe to you, but you cannot fight the battles that we are facing today while you are holed up in your prayer closet. It is time to come out, prayed up but ready for the spiritual warfare that is seeking to burn down our house and our nation. Some have chosen to let it burn down, thinking that God will any moment sweep us away to heaven. Those who believe such things will only find themselves in despair when they realize they should have been working to save the house while they were painting the barn. We will not need barns in heaven, I can assure you. But God is building an eternal house for his name. You are that house, and the enemy is working overtime to burn it down. He cannot win, rest assured of that. But he can distract you, and he can convince you to either stay in your closet or to keep painting on that barn. God will let you feel the flame if that's what it takes to motivate you to do his will and work and purpose. To see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth right now as it is in heaven. God may be letting us feel the heat of the flames. May we realize what's happening and not wait until it is too late. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I forgot to say, in the name of Jesus, come out. That was kind of a joke. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. As you go to his kingdom work, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you.